Welcome back to FinTech Business Podcast. I'm here today with Trisha Kothari, co-founder and CEO of Unit 21. Unit 21 is a no-code risk and compliance infrastructure solution, uh, which helps businesses to manage fraud and AML risks. Trisha, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time. For listeners who are unfamiliar with Unit 21, can you provide a little more context on the company, the kinds of capabilities you provide, and the kinds of companies that you work with? Thank you, Jason. Very excited to be here. Uh, first off, building products like Unit 21 is fun and awesome, but if we don't solve real-world customer problems and provide value, we wouldn't be growing as a company. So I want to start off saying thank you to all of our current customers, uh, companies like Chime, Binance, Intuit, along with future customers who trust us to help them stop bad actors. Our core mission at Unit 21 is to empower and enable risk and compliance teams to stop bad actors, whether it's a fraud or anti-money laundering, and really using data automation and infrastructure which doesn't rely on a constant battle for internal engineering resources. One of the biggest problems in fraud is that fraud is constantly evolving. It's, you know, you can't just solve it once and for all. Uh, so companies have to look ahead and go from a very fraud detection to a fraud prevention mindset. And the main impediment in order to go from fraud detection to fraud prevention is that companies have all of their data in silos. So today, almost every fraud detection company or vendor out there, they mostly look at transaction data. In some cases, maybe they look at identity data, but, but that's it. They only look at transaction, maybe sometimes identity data. But a lot of fraud can be prevented, if you think about it, if you look at all of your data. You can look at, has the user changed their password in the last two days, how many times? Has a user added an admin uh, to their account? Have they logged in today from what IP addresses? So at the core, at Unit 21, we've developed a risk and compliance infrastructure, which enables customers to unlock all of their data so that they can have a much more proactive approach for fraud and AML than the more standard reactive approach that is out there today. And ultimately, really, why we built a taking this infrastructure players is to help companies lower fraud loss, lower false positives from an anti-money laundering perspective. But also companies don't realize that um, a better risk and compliance program can actually be a huge business driver. You can expand into new states, new products, new countries without hitting regulatory hiccups. And, and that is really our goal is by having this proactive approach to fraud uh, prevention and AML automation you can drive much better business value. Yeah, I mean that definitely resonates. I can, you know, tell you from from my experience in the consumer lending sector, uh, you know, when you know a, a company would experience, you know, we would use the phrase fraud attack in the sense that some sort of vulnerability, some sort of new vulnerability was detected and once um, you know, the entities that are looking to exploit that, you know, figure out that weakness, they will ruthlessly exploit it uh, until you sort of figure out what the vector is and, and patch it. And, and frequently, you know, the initial reaction, uh, at least in the sort of lending world that I worked in, was, you know, you need to, to staunch the bleeding. And often that means putting in like really 
um, blunt, you know, heuristic rules to try to sort of prevent whatever bad actor uh, is is taking advantage of a gap. Um, I know you guys did a lot of work recently surveying folks in the marketplace and, and put out a report based on those conversations um, and survey results that you gathered, uh, a state of fraud and AML in 2022. Um, what were some of your biggest takeaways from, from putting that report together? Yeah, our marketing team surveyed 231 risk and compliance experts, which allowed us to really understand what is the customer's problem, what are the priorities in the industry today. And it was really interesting. We found out that the top three priorities were uh, number one, which was 78% of participants reported that meeting compliance requirements and the ability to rapidly update rules for fraud was the biggest priority. Uh, the second was um, 65%, which is reducing the impact on revenue and false positives. And 35% um, said onboarding more users securely. So looking at it, the priorities tell us a few things. Firstly, it's kind of surprising that onboarding isn't higher than the plethora of KYC vendors. If you just search KYC, you'll find 100,000 hits. And <laughs> it, it seems like you know, there's a ton of document verification providers out there, but that's not actually solving the crux of the issue, uh, which was really what we saw in the priorities reported by the risk and compliance teams. What we found was that the real problem was that a lot of these fintech companies, financial institutions, crypto companies, they were using legacy vendors. And these legacy vendors were limiting their ability to make updates, which meant that they couldn't be agile. So when they wanted to react fast to capture that new fraud vector, like you mentioned, they had a really blunt hammer and um, they were not able to also automate enough processes to pass those audits. So then if you think about it, you know, you know the first thing would be like, okay, can there be more resources thrown in the problem? But 60% of risk and compliance teams expected less than 10% or no growth at all in their headcount. And half of them, over half of them believe that fraud is higher than pre-pandemic levels. So they have no agility, they have no resources and they have higher fraud. And you know, if you like the truth is that these teams are set up to fail. So the question is, how can we, like, you know, what can we do? And the biggest thing that companies do from an infrastructure perspective is that they they get point solutions which provide a risk score, which will say, okay, is this eight on 10? If it's more than eight on 10, accept or then reject. And then they have their own in-house tooling, uh, which can help make sense of those risk scores. And what we found was that for all of these companies, 60% um, said that they get less than 15 hours of engineering support annually. So clearly in-house solutions was just not a fix here. And ultimately that main learning is that risk and compliance teams are serving a really important goal of the business, not just in terms of fraud loss reduction or making compliance more, effective, but also enabling and unlocking business growth. And they need to be able to constantly respond to the changing patterns in fraud without needing engineering support. And this is really where we want to take the industry, where we as a company want to support our customers 
to get that degree of empowerment that they can own their own operations. Yeah, I mean, that, again, definitely resonates. I, I uh, very much firsthand have experienced the constraint, you know, particularly of engineering resources. And, and I think anyone, you know, listening who, you know, has a role that interfaces with, you know, product management and software engineering, you know, or works at any kind of startup, you know, will be familiar with, you know, the constraints that that puts on a business. And particularly in sort of that startup venture back world where, you know, you might be operating uh, as a business on a 12 to 18 month time horizon, you know, you have to make hard choices about how to prioritize those resources. And, and I can mm -hmm. imagine, you know, if you have sort of a, uh, a list, you know, a backlog of product features and somewhere in there is fraud related things, fraud related tooling, etc. But you also want to launch, you know, some new cool feature that's going to help you attract more customers. That's a really tough, you know, very tough decision to make. I mean, the calculus also, you know, is constantly shifting. You know, we've talked about uh, sort of the emergence of novel fraud mm -hmm. vectors, how those, you know, change all the time. You know, there's also a huge piece happening uh, around regulation and regulatory scrutiny. So, I mean, at the moment, a couple of relevant topics that that I imagine intersect with your business um, obviously include, you know, crypto. And there's always uh, mm -hmm. a lot of attention focused on that sector, um, you know, including things like sanctions compliance and, and money mm -hmm. laundering, et cetera. Um, and then in the more sort of traditional fintech world, uh, we're seeing increased scrutiny on banking as a service business models, um, you know, including where uh, the OCC have flagged concerns around banks' ability to supervise uh, their third-party partners and those partners and customers and consumers. How are you thinking about some of these evolving regulatory issues as far as how they impact you know, your business as well as your customers' businesses? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, really, like let's take the example of banking as a service, sponsor bank models. It, it's really interesting because we're in many ways in uncharted territory. And what's interesting is that you know all like fintech companies have a sponsor bank, which is the actual bank on record. And and for these banks, the way that they think of regulatory obligation and meeting regulatory compliance is very different. Uh, the reason is that these banks are very used to you know, providing standard brick and mortar, checking ac account opening solutions or mortgage solutions. And for a lot of them, taking on different types of fintech is a very new thing. Uh, what we see is the reason that the the change from their original products to, to becoming more of a banking as a service platform is challenging is that different fintech companies have different needs. The types of uh, vectors of attack that you would see for a retirement savings account is going to be very different than the vectors of attack that you see for um, debit card for teenagers. And, and that's interesting that you know this is the same bank but now, based on the different types of fintech it is onboarding, it has to look at different types of things. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, a lot of these sponsor banks, they use legacy solutions like Verifin, Actimize. 
and what that prevents them from getting to a place of agility and a place where for let's say they meet a new fintech and they want to onboard them they can easily do that and this becomes a huge impediment to the growth of uh, and, and the ability of the bank to take on new fintech but fintech companies but also for the fintech to be able to be launched and we've seen really massive impacts on the bank we recently talked to a very famous sponsor bank that said it would take them nine months to onboard a fintech nine months is a lifetime in startup land as a company if you are going without a product or being able to test a product for nine months that is that's a, a bill of death that you have to swallow um so what we're I mean, now started sorry, go ahead go, go ahead go ahead <laughs> <laughs> so I, what i was saying is that we're starting to see some of the more tech forward sponsor banks really take a better approach um, so one of the companies that we're partnering with is Pure Mont Bank. And they're able to bring on fintech companies really quickly. They were able to ensure that they look at the risk factors that make sense for that type of business. So retirement savings account is going to be looking at different, they look at different kinds of things than for um, a debit card for immigrants. And and that is really the core, the core um inherent factor of being in this uncharted territory is that even the partners in who are working with fintech companies need to be having that agility to respond quickly i mean that makes a lot of sense and perhaps you know i guess now when i say it out loud it's like kind of obvious but the point you made uh about uh you know a lot of these sponsor banks through their direct and perhaps you know banking as a service platform relationships, entering lines of business that perhaps they've had no previous experience with that are mm -hmm. you know, bringing, in, bringing in new kinds of risks to the bank. So, I mean, if you're, you know, a small community bank in, you know, Tennessee or Virginia or wherever, um, you know, perhaps you've had a very sort of traditional book of business, you know, mortgages, uh, commercial real estate, um, you know, small business lending, et cetera, you know, all of a sudden, if you're partnering with 10, 20, 30 fintechs, you could have um, products, customers, transactions that you've never really had to sort of build a framework for for evaluating the risk before. I mean, in, in having conversations with a lot of people across the banking as a service ecosystem, you know, the theme I hear the most is that the, I mean, maybe not the only solution, but one piece of the solution of sort of the scrutiny that's happening now is, you know, how do you intelligently use technology to do these things at scale, right? So so that onboarding doesn't take nine months, you know, maybe mm -hmm. it takes three months. Um, or, you know, if you have 15 or 20 or 30 fintech partners as a sponsor bank, that you have systems in place that make it feasible to, you know, oversee those uh, in, you know, in compliance with what your regulators say you need to do. I mean, switching gears a little bit, um, another hot topic that has come up, uh, you know, in CFPB, in congressional mm -hmm. hearings lately is peer-to-peer -peer fraud. 
Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it has been focused around Zelle, you know, which of course mm -hmm. is owned and operated by uh, Early Warning System, which is a consortium mm -hmm. of major banks. But platforms like Cash App and Venmo, PayPal, have seen their share of fraud, particularly over the course of the pandemic as well. Um, I've actually, in my own life, noticed some of these services introducing new warnings and disclosures that seem aimed at sort of mitigating some of this risk. I, I happen to be a Chase customer. I noticed mm -hmm. some very, uh, very strong warnings on their, their Zelle uh, UX flow. Um, and also WISE, TransferWise, the uh, remittance service, I've noticed some new disclaimers there as well. You know, mm -hmm. from where you sit at Unit 21, you know, what more can be done to kind of mitigate fraud risk in this this peer-to-peer -peer space, particularly with the rise of, of instant or semi-instant payments where once they happen, you know, it's it's basically impossible to reverse them? Yeah, it's a really good question. And a really timely one as well. The in order to really understand what what we can do, we need to understand why um, why PayPal, why Zelle had these major fraud attacks. Um, so PayPal, for example, a couple of months ago uh, reported that they had four and a half million fraudulent accounts uh, on uh, on the system, and uh, they had. A new sign-up bonus. So the way it was working was they had a new sign-up bonus to promote new account openings. And fraudsters took the opportunity. They made a ton of fake accounts, and uh, re the goal was to cash out a large amount from PayPal and pool those sign-up bonuses together. So when you think about it, it's pretty surprising because PayPal has a very risk, uh, has a very mature risk infrastructure program. But what we've noticed is what most companies where they operate is um, the first level that you know when a business starts and they think about fraud is they have maybe manual spreadsheets they're looking at google sheets they're running sql queries and then they graduate to the next level which is level two where they get a lot of uh, vendors that provide risk scores and so they get a vendor that provides a risk score for kyc or vendor that provides risk score for document verification a vendor that provides a risk score for um, for maybe device, and they get all of this data in, and then they have some kind of in-house tooling to be able to make sense of the data. But at the core, it really does not provide that degree of agility because all of these risk scores are living in complete data silos, and there is no way to be able to combine and understand what exactly is is the overall picture of where the new fraud attacks are happening. So for example, uh, with PayPal, if they were able to really get a better sense of unusually high account openings in uh, with maybe the same IP address or the same geolocation, uh, get all of the device signal in as well, and not just look at that transactional data, look at whether this user has added a new admin to the account, the user has added a new payment instrument to the account, this payment instrument is linked with other payment instruments, and get a better sense of those fraud rings, uh, they would have potentially been able to find the, the four and a half million fraudulent accounts before it became you know, this huge, uh, huge new sensation. And that's where we see that companies have to start graduating from that level to where they're relying on point solutions that, okay, if it's greater than eight on 10, reject. If it's less than eight on 10, accept to a more infrastructure 
foundation where they can leverage all of their data, which includes not just their third-party data providers, but also their own internal customer data, which only they get. And until they actually get and have a better sense of all of their data, they will never really be able to solve or have a preventative lens to that fraud because um, any machine learning model is only going to be trained on past data and past data labels. So to identify new future signals, you have to really have a very close look at all of your data and, and where signals are changing. And uh, we see that a lot with, um, with, with the companies that we work with that are able to leverage tools like link analysis to, um, to utilize all of their custom data. They're able to significantly reduce fraud loss because they have a much better pulse of this looks suspicious and this looks like it's the inkling of a new fraud ring. So let me investigate before the fraud ring becomes the real thing. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see the evolution of, of the space. No, I mean, the, the PayPal example, I think, is really interesting. And, um, I mean, in some regards, it feels like we probably only know about that because PayPal is publicly traded and had to disclose mm -hmm. this, you know, as part of their earnings process. You know, it kind of makes me wonder, like, how many other, you know, companies are out there that maybe are reporting a certain, you know, number of millions of accounts but you know, certainly some proportion of those were prob probably fraudulently opened, seeking out this kind of referral bonus. I mean, all sorts of companies, particularly in the neo bank space, and not just in the U.S., but I mean, in the U.K. and and you know other other geographies as well. You know, really tried to drive those sign up numbers with various kinds of referral schemes. I mean, granted, perhaps some of this is in the past, in the sense that the mindset of growth at all costs, you know, has mm -hmm. given way a bit towards uh, perhaps more discipline as the funding environment has shifted and companies are now focused a bit more uh, on, you know, things like unit economics and profitability. Um, I mean, as this environment has, has shifted, you know, I'm curious to hear from your point of view, um, you know, how, how is Unit 21? How are your customers navigating the sort of new normal uh, environment? You know, has it impacted how people are thinking about customer acquisition? I would imagine it has. Has it impacted how they're mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, fraud and, you know, AML risks as well? Yeah, you know, today in a world where VCs are not funding or distributing funds the way that they used to, companies really need to switch to a smart growth mode and focus on acquisition costs for acquiring high quality users. And we've seen a really big shift. Uh, the biggest shift that we have seen is that companies are leveraging more, so more of that data so that they can look at what they have and instead of throwing just more humans at the problem or just like more and more vendors at the problem. They're getting a better sense of yours, all, all of the data. Let's get it in an infrastructure, make sense of it, and be able to um, achieve lower fraud loss with the resources that we have today instead of continuously adding more resources to the problem. Uh, we've seen companies become far more metrics driven. Uh, companies are tracking, even the pre launch companies are set up to track things like the fraud loss rate, the false positive rate. Um, the throughput, so the number of alerts that every agent is handling. 
uh, there is a much, much stronger lens uh, today than it was last year on the efficiency and effectiveness of the programs. And um, recently, uh, I was talking to someone, and we were talking about how fraud is really not, cannot be viewed in isolation. It has to be viewed with growth. Um, I mentioned that you know, if you don't want any fraud, don't have any customers, you're not going to have any fraud. <laughs> and vice versa, you know, if if you want to just grow, then just take all of the fraud. It doesn't matter, like PayPal, you have four and a half million accounts, but they're not real business. But ultimately, the growth numbers also have to be viewed with the lens of how many high quality customers are you acquiring, where the cost of onboarding, the cost of keeping that customer on, um, and, and the cost of the potential fraud risk is as low as possible. Um, so we're actually really excited that, you know, in, while there's an economic downturn, the, the, um, you know, the silver lining is that, that companies are looking at it from a much more logical standpoint, from a resource perspective, and I'm viewing all of the metrics with equal importance rather than focusing on growth at all costs. Yeah, I mean, coming from a lending background, like that sector always has to have the discipline around, you know, fraud and credit risk. Even even when when you know times are good and VC money is flush, when you know when you're lending people money, it's an important part of the business model to to get it back, right? And and definitely understand your your uh, comment about sort of the interlinking of growth. Uh, and fraud. I mean, in in my case, you know, when I was in operating roles, um, they tended to be marketing roles, right? So I was the guy who cared about like, you know, how many loans did we book yesterday or this month? And, you know, there's that interplay between, you know, growth team, marketing team, and, you know, credit risk of like, oh, you're declining all these leads I'm generating, like I'm spending all this money, my CPA looks terrible. Um, so, I mean, that that there's a real set of trade-offs there, but to your point, it's about using uh, sort of uh, level-up lens of, you know, optimizing across the entire business. And yeah, if, if you want fraud losses or in the lending case, you know, credit losses to be zero, you know, just, just don't have any customers and you'll be fine. Um, I mean, definitely, I think the uh, level of pressure has stepped up, particularly on, you know, non- non-lending fintech companies mm -hmm. where you know a, a growing user number makes a great press release and it's a great metric mm -hmm. to include in an earnings deck if you know if you're public but you know to your point it's like what is the quality of those users even for the ones that are you know that are real legitimate users um it's not zero cost to onboard and service mm -hmm. those accounts. So what is the what is the NPV? What is the revenue associated with those users versus the cost? And, and I think we're seeing a lot more discipline come back into the ecosystem, you know, as the funding environment has shifted a bit. Two more questions for you. Uh, Money 2020 is just around the corner. Uh, I am actually not a big fan of Vegas, but I am very excited to go to the <laughs> event. Uh, what are you most looking forward to about the conference? Yeah, I'm looking forward to catching up with our customers, with friends, um, you know, really chatting about the problems that we are seeing, the problems they are seeing, and uh, and and getting to meet everyone if you like. It's the annual pilgrimage. 
Um, what, what I'm really excited about is uh, we have uh, launched recently an initiative uh, at Unit 21 um, called the FinTech Fraud DAOs. It's a decentralized autonomous organization for getting the consortium, uh, for, for really a consortium for FinTech companies, like an early warning system for FinTech and crypto companies. And um, we studied a lot of different consortiums uh, that started and worked and did not work in the past. And um, we realized three main things that we are, you know, we've uh, we've really kept in mind and and front and center as we've launched our decentralized autonomous organization, which is uh, the first is a governance structure. Uh, we wanted to create a governance structure where. Uh, the participants in the consortium had the ability to vote out a bad player. So if someone was providing crappy data, you could vote them out, and you had the ability to control who um, who is in the consortium. And this was really important because the biggest problem that we saw uh, with previous consortiums is that it's as good as the quality of the data. And so if you have a bad actor who's putting crappy data in, then you're just, again, not set up to succeed. Uh, so we're really excited about this governance structure, which um, is really very novel uh, to implement a DAO for a consortium. Uh, the second is that we, the ways that the types of data that we are um, sharing back with our users is, is much richer than what has been done with previous consortiums. Uh, I, I can't share much more on this call, but if, if people are interested, then definitely reach out to uh, to me or, or to us at unit21.ai. And the third thing I'm really excited about is, you know, the data is as good as, as the quality of the participants. Uh, so we're excited that we have companies like Brex, Prime Crafts, Chime, um, DriveWealth, who are uh, who are signed up for the consortium. Um, so we're excited for the launch and to be meeting more people and discussing how uh, we can make this a really strong utility for the entire fintech and crypto community and also uh, my marketing team will yell at me if i don't say this but uh, we'll be at ACA at uh, money 2020 so please stop by our booth at booth number 2329 we you will get a custom t-shirt and a yeti so yeah say hi to us a yeti like a like a cooler yeah like <laughs> a cooler it's our most popular swag item all right, I'm gonna have to to stop by uh, stop by your booth. Final question: uh, Where can listeners learn more about Unit Twenty One and follow you on social? Uh, yeah, in order to um, learn more about Unit Twenty One, feel free to contact us at Unit Twenty One AI. We have a newsletter that we send weekly content with on ways to tackle fraud, ways to be compliant, ways to improve your compliance program. Uh, if you'd like to sign up, and um, and yeah, feel free uh, to uh, contact me on LinkedIn or um, or, or DM me if, if you'd like to take this conversation forward. Fantastic, Trisha. So much. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, hopefully, we have a chance to meet in person at Money Twenty Twenty when I stop by to get my custom T-shirt and my Yeti. Uh, but if not. <laughs> I hope you have a great, uh, great conference, great time in Las Vegas. Thank you, Jason. See you there.